0: Turning on that September day Were you in the yard with your wife and children or working on some stage in LA? Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor or did you just sit down and cry?
1: Hello everybody, this is Andrew Gamson with the Speaking for Him podcast, so very grateful that you have decided to join us today, and if you are finding benefit from any of the episodes of this podcast, please let other people know how they can listen each week. We really want to encourage as many people as we can on this journey that we call the Christian life. So today we're going to continue on our uh, Myths of Modern Popular Christianity series, and today we're going to tackle the myth, uh, we can harness the power of positive thinking. Now, this is probably the most nuanced study that we've done on this series because a lot of these things we're going to talk about are not in and of themselves wrong, uh, but our approach to them needs to be correct. And there is definitely precedent for positive thinking in the Bible because Jesus said, as a man Think of in his heart, so is he. But all things must be done decently and in order. So I'm looking forward to digging deeper with you into what proper positive thinking is all about. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about what is going on. Well, this week marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks um, the most egregious attack on American soil definitely since Pearl Harbor. A lot of us remember where we were at that particular time, and I have some reflections on that. But before we do that, I want to share a clip from the BBC um, from a few days ago with President George W. Bush and some of the other players that day talking about what was going through their minds as our country was under attack.
0: nine eleven would become a date to remember. The job of our president is to protect the American people from harm. And some presidents don't need to worry about that, and some do. And it turns out I was one that did.
2: My assistant came in and said, a plane is at the World Trade Center. And I said, well, that's a strange accident and I called the president. Initially, we thought maybe a small plane of some kind, and he said, well, keep me posted. He'd been told that a small twin-engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. You know, oh, that's a horrible accident. I was concerned, but it, I did not think of it as a national security threat.
1: I remember when he came in, even as a seven-year-old, you know who the president is, right? And I remember, like, even feeling, like, that young feeling, like, kind of, like, starstruck. And, like i'm going to disney world or something and i put my hand over my heart like i you know when you think about patriotic things when you're that little you know you do the pledge of allegiance every day and i literally put my hand over my heart
2: i asked my communicators if they could find a television and at about one minute after nine they came back in with a television set so we brought cnn up I was calling the White House Situation Room to talk to my senior duty officer, so I was chatting with him on the handset and watched the television as the rest of the country was watching the television at 9.03 when the second aircraft impact impacted into the second World Trade Center tower.
0: When the second plane hit, there was an audible gasp of air in the room. Some people put their hand on their chest. It was two realizations, right? One, that the immediate death toll. And then the fact that this was an attack on America.
1: More. Yes, more. Get ready. Yes, light.
0: It hits me as I'm standing there next to the president, to the left, that the president's the only one that doesn't know the second plane has hit the building. I had to deliver a
2: message that the president didn't expect to hear, and was almost unbelievable. But it also, literally, was the message he had to hear, whether he wanted to or not.
0: Andy Carr comes up to my behind me and says, second plane is hit the to second tower. America's under attack. And I'm watching a child read. And then I see the press in the back uh, of the room beginning to get the same message I just got. And I could see the horror etched on the face of the news people who had just gotten the same news. During a crisis, it's really important uh, to set a tone uh, and not to panic. And so I waited for the appropriate moment to leave the classroom. I didn't want to do anything dramatic. I didn't want to, you know, lurch out of the chair and scare the classroom full of children. And so I waited.
1: And there you have some very sobering reflections on 9-11 from people that were there that day, people that were in charge of this great nation that day, and their response to it. I will say that I think that one of the things that was encouraging coming out of nine eleven was the sense of community and the sense of overall patriotism that came out of it. Uh, people were rushing to help one another. I'll never forget hearing about the first responders who were rushing toward the two towers when, so many people were rushing to get out of them. And just the, the level of duty that that took. Um, you know, I heard stories about people that were off duty that rushed to help on 9-11. Um, because uh, the reason you take those jobs is for uh, days like that. Days when people are running away from danger. You run toward it. That's what makes you a first responder, and that's what makes you a hero. And I remember, you know, as I absorbed the events of 9-11, that was one of the things that stuck out to me, and it really helped me to reflect on something Mr. Rogers said, that in the wake of every tragedy, look for the helpers, and you'll find hope there. Um, And that is really the case for 9-11. As for personal reflections, uh, on that day, September 11th, 2001, I was in my room, uh, doing college work, uh, because I was in a college correspondence program. And I think I probably saw something, uh, about a suspected, uh, crash of a, uh, commuter plane into the world, uh, trade center. Of course, we didn't know much at that point. Um, but it it was an accident and kind of a big story, but not anything real big. And then I kind of gravitated away from the news because I needed to work on my schoolwork. And I began to work on my schoolwork and my brother Thaddeus uh, ran downstairs and said, uh, Amer- a second plane just hit the world trade center. America is under attack. And, I remember having that surreal moment of this doesn't happen to me. This happens to other people, but it doesn't happen to me. And if I'm, I'm having that feeling, I can only imagine the feeling that people in New York were having. So I don't mean to, um, compare my feelings to theirs. Okay. But just this reality of living in America and having this idea that America is always going to be safe and that we don't have to uh, worry about the threats of war or the security threats that other nations have that was shattered that day. But then seeing the American response and the resolve that we had uh, for seeing America protected and for coming together for the greater good was so amazing seeing people, um, turned away from blood banks because so many people were giving that even with the great need, they were overwhelmed uh, with the sheer volume of uh, people giving blood, you know, things like that are things that I will never forget. It's often said that um, we would never want to go back to September 11th. One of the things that's so hard about the situation is there were some great things that came out of it, but the tragedy that came first was something that none of us wanted or would want to repeat. Um, it's so interesting, isn't it? That often our greatest triumphs come out of suffering. And so it's often said that, well, I would never want to go back to September 11th, 2001. I would definitely in many ways want to go back to September 12th. 2001 and the weeks directly following uh, those attacks, because we saw a level of of patriotism and community and togetherness that is sadly lacking in today's America. Um, But if I could just encourage you today um, to make sure that you are loving your neighbors, that you are reaching out to your community. We don't need a tragedy uh, like nine 11 to make us do that. We need to be on the front lines of doing that every single day, whether in good times or bad. Another way that this directly impacted my family was that my brother made the decision um, to support the president and the U.S. the U.S.'s mission um, to defend this country by going into the army. And my brother Thaddeus was the first of my family to join the military. And then since then, I've had a total of two brothers Uh, join the Army. I've had a brother in the Air Force. I've got a brother and a brother-in-law in in the Navy. And I have a brother that served with honor in the Marine Corps. And I'm very proud of each of them and the sacrifices that they made for our country. And I will always be grateful um, for the blank check that they wrote to preserve my safety and liberty. And so I just want to give them a shout out and let them know that I'm thinking of them today. Um, It's interesting how we we basically went from not really having uh, a military presence in our family to having a lot of military in my family. And so it's just been interesting um, learning about that world and supporting them as they take up the sacred duty to um, defend the United States of America, and I'm extremely grateful for them. Um, and just listening to that audio, it just it humanizes the situation. I know some people criticize um some of the things that George W. Bush did in response um to 9/11, particularly uh, in the minutes after finding out after the attack. Some people say that he didn't have um. An aggressive enough response immediately following, uh, but as he said in that piece, he was concerned about the welfare of the young children that were reading to him that day, and he did not want to scare them or or make them feel vulnerable, feel frightened in any way. And I greatly respect that. And again, uh, we can have um, disagreements. Uh, inside of what exactly uh, happened as a result of these attacks. But one thing that we do know is that 9-11 taught us that we are as a nation vulnerable to attack and we do need to be ready and we do need to be able to defend ourselves as a nation and hope and pray that that something like 9-11 does not reoccur. And so it's important Um, to revisit our history on a regular basis. And anniversaries like this give us the opportunity to do it. I think it's important uh, to say, especially in this era of revising history or deleting history, more importantly, that deleting history doesn't change it. And that history is history. Uh, You can't make it different than it is. Um, history, History is there for you to learn from. It's not there for you to change in a way um, that sanitizes the severity of it. Another example of that would be the Holocaust. We need to continue to talk about the Holocaust because it was an evil aggression which took place on the Jews. Six million Jews exterminated by Hitler. We need to continue to talk about slavery because it was an evil aggression that took place on thousands of people throughout American history until the Civil War was resolved. Many of them African American. We need to talk about um, the segregation that took place in in the past in the 40s and 50s leading up to the 1964 Civil Rights Act because it was a part of our history. Because those who do not learn from their history will be doomed to repeat it. So I hope that as we are looking at this coming anniversary of 9-11, that you will take the time to spend some time with your kids, if you have kids, and just share with them the significance of that day. Maybe talk about where you were when you found out about it and how it impacted you from that point forward. And I trust that you will, above all, look to God to continue to guide and direct us as a nation and also personally. The biggest hope that we have as a nation is that if we turn back to Him, He will listen, He will hear, and He will answer. The Bible says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So we really need to remember that. And that really is a good segue into my next story um, because as a follow-up to last week, as I told you, Governor Greg Abbott and the state of Texas, um, their heartbeat bill became law, which means that um, any baby with a discernible heartbeat in Texas cannot um, be aborted, which is, I believe, a great day for America and... Um, The Supreme Court was asked to put an injunction on this law um, while it was determined the constitutionality of it, and the Supreme Court declined such an injunction.
3: We begin with more breaking news tonight. A stunning Supreme Court decision. Justices voting 5-4, to four refusing to block a Texas law that outlaws abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. The vote deals a major blow to abortion rights and is the first such abortion ban permitted in any state since the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade back in 1973. That landmark ruling legalized abortion nationwide, guaranteeing the women the right to a safe and legal abortion. Justice Sonia Sotomayor blasting the court's decision tonight. Calling the Texas law a, quote, breathtaking act of defiance of the Constitution, of this court's precedence, and of the rights of women seeking abortions throughout Texas, unquote. Earlier tonight, people gathering in West Hollywood to protest the Texas law and support a constitutional right to choice. Reporter Leanne Souter was there. She joins us now with more on this story. Leanne.
2: Mark, local activists are calling this new law a racial and economical catastrophe, saying it targets the women most at risk. The nation's most restrictive abortion law now in effect in Texas, banning nearly all abortions in the state. No exceptions for rape or incest, only medical emergencies. It's not just extreme, this new law. It is very dangerous to the health and the safety and the lives. Of women. I do think that uh, it is an attempt to do an end run against the United States Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade.
3: My body, my
2: choice. Tonight, protesters gathering in West Hollywood, America's first pro choice city, issuing a call to action. What do we do when the law itself has become an instrument of abuse? That's really a new one on me when we're talking about the rights of women. From Houston to Austin, women in Texas rallying, demanding a stop to the ban. Under the law, no one can terminate a pregnancy after about six weeks or as soon as a fetal heartbeat is detected. Advocates say that's around the same time most women realize they are pregnant. The ban now affecting about 85 percent of abortions in Texas. Many say the law unfairly targets low-income minority women. Historically, black women have encountered limited access to equitable reproductive health services, abortion
0: access, and this new bill incentivized harassment.
2: The new law, not enforceable by the state, instead, it empowers private citizens anywhere in the U.S. to sue anyone who performs or even helps transport a woman to get an illegal abortion in Texas. If successful, they could get up to $10,000 at a minimum. Women were told they would be hunted in this country simply for seeking access to health care. It is unconscionable. Texas is the first and only state so far to implement such a restrictive ban, and now that the Supreme Court has ruled, many fear other states will soon follow suit.
1: Okay, so I just have a couple things that I want to say about this. First of all, We talked on last week's show when this law became law about how there's three distinct ways that a law becomes law. So I won't go into detail on that here. But I find it ironic that the people that are fighting against this law are upset at the Supreme Court for not placing an injunction on a legally pursued law. the same body that they also imbue with the right to make law out of whole cloth. So that doesn't make sense to me. If you believe that the Supreme court has the power to make a law where there was none, as in the case of Roe versus Wade, why would you not believe in that same court's ability to, to uphold a law that they deem constitutional. That is actually the job of the Supreme Court. Many of us lose that because we are used to a society that has become increasingly determined by judicial fiat. That's why, you know, toward the end of the Trump presidency, when the Republicans confirmed Amy Coney Barrett, that was the significance of it. You know, this was mostly a decision to not put an injunction. So this battle is far from over. But it is significant to me that often when courts deal with laws and deem them unconstitutional, usually a lower court deems it unconstitutional. And then whoever made the law goes to the next highest court until hopefully eventually the Supreme Court puts it on their docket And decides it. And in this case, the Supreme Court came out and said in a 5-4 to decision, we will not put an injunction on this law. And so, it's significant to note that all three of the justices that Donald Trump appointed voted on the pro-life side of things. The next thing that I want to say, and I don't want to belabor this discussion about masks, but I found it significant in watching this video clip that so many of the people that were on the Capitol steps or wherever they were protesting this bill were wearing masks. They were wearing masks in a place where where they, by and large, no longer have mask mandates, where... There was never laws for masks. So they're willing to obey an executive order or a former executive order as if it's a law, but they can protest an actual law done through the legislative process as unconstitutional. Now, I'm not going to say that I would agree with every law that is passed, but when you even have the late... Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, former Justice of the Supreme Court, saying that Roe v. Wade is a bad law, and you have Joseph Biden in the lead-up to the presidential election in 2020 saying that he wants to codify into law the right to abortion, you basically have the admission that this is bad law. So I just think it's funny that you can protest a legislatively arrived at law, which is the way that we arrive at laws in our country, but then you say that it destroys the Constitution because we've taken judicial fiat out of the power of the court to a certain extent. Now, of course, Roe v. Wade hasn't fallen, uh, but that's another thing that people need to understand about Roe versus Wade. I I don't want to belabor this point either, but I just want to point out that three years before Roe versus Wade, it was permissible to get an abortion in New York. New York, as a matter of fact, in um, in response to some of these conservative bills, came up with their own bill, which which basically strengthened the ability to get abortion up to birth. And I know there's always going to be people that don't believe that abortion should be determined by the government. They say, government, stay out of the, my doctor's office, stay out of my body. What do they realize when they say that, that the Supreme Court is actually part of the government, that the reason we are actually here, where the Texas legislature felt the need to put this bill into place and to take a stand for life is because the Supreme Court acted and said it's the right of a woman to kill their unborn child. And I know some people will say, well, there should be a rape and incest Exception. Why does the added trauma of abortion make rape or incest any better? And in effect, when you're saying that rape and incest should be an abortable offense, you're basically saying that Brian Baumberger and Rebecca Kissling, two very active pro life speakers, should not exist because they were the products of rape. See, it's not a baby's conceptual circumstances that determine its humanity. I had my own uncle tell me that I was valuable because my parents wanted me. But I'm telling you right now, I am not valuable because my parents want me. If my parents rejected me and they said they didn't want me, I would still be valuable. Why? Because I was created in the image of God. And so I want to make a plea specifically to Christians right here and now to support the pro-life position. Not just in words, but in actions. I understand that it's more than just until they're born, but there's so many crisis pregnancy centers who are giving help to unwed mothers. There are pro-life homes for unwed mothers across the country that are giving help to unwed mothers so that they can give life to their children. And this is the type of thing we need to support. Because if you believe with the Bible, if you believe what God says about people being made in the image of God then you have no right having a pro-choice position regardless of the circumstances. The rape and incest exception only constitutes about 1% of all abortions and it's basically an opportunity to get the toe in the door so that abortion can continue in America. So all that to say I will not apologize for standing for life. Today, as I said, we are talking about myths that are popular in the modern church. And when I say that, I'm not talking about Bible-believing churches. There are plenty of great Bible-believing churches, and I'm grateful for each one of them. What I'm talking about is certain people who are particularly in the prosperity gospel field who use the Bible out of context and cause people a lot of harm. Specifically when they say that you can have blessings by following biblical principles without following the God of the Bible. So that is why we are discussing what we are discussing today. And let's get started with our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, where God says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you and i will take away the stony heart of your flesh and i will give you an heart of flesh and so this verse is talking about the transformative power that god works in a person when god gets through to you and i he takes out our old sinful heart and puts in it puts in its place a soft teachable heart a heart of flesh a heart that has conviction of sin and a heart that will allow him to discipline us and help us to grow in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ the Bible says desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow Thereby, the Bible also says we are to be rooted and grounded in Christ. I mentioned earlier uh, at the outset that this is this is one of the more difficult conversations to have because on the surface, a lot of this stuff sounds good, and in its proper context is good, but we need to make sure that we have the proper context. So the first aspect of positive thinking that I want to talk about is I am empowered. When people often say this, they have this idea that they can make things happen in their life because of how great they are or because of how much effort they put in. Now there is a level that, that where this is true because the reality is that if I have a goal and I work hard to reach it, I'm much more likely to reach it than someone who has a goal and they only ever just dream about it. When I had the thought for this podcast, I had to put in the work to make this podcast happen. I couldn't just be like, well, it would be great to have a weekly podcast. um, And I'm just going to manifest that that's going to happen. No, I had to put in the work. But what this also dangerously says and what it usually means in the context of our discussion is that I within myself have the power to do great things. Here's what Paul said about where he got his power to succeed in that which God called him to do. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I want you to notice something here. Paul is not speaking from a place of perfection or strength. He's actually speaking from a place of weakness. But what he is finding is that In his imperfections, in his weakness, God's grace shows up. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. We don't know uh, the true extent of it, but we do know that it was a struggle for him. And we know that God ultimately said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul had to learn to live with that thorn in the flesh. And as he's living, he makes this important statement. He says, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. So not only is he saying, I'm going to deal with my infirmities, not only is he saying, I can handle them, but he's saying, I can glory in them. And why is that? Because when he glories in his infirmities, the power of God rests upon him. And I don't know about you, but, for myself as a believer, I want the power of God to rest upon me. And this was a watershed moment for me when I realized that God's power could rest upon me in my weakness. Because I kept wanting for him to take my weakness away. And he said, no, just like with Paul, he said, my strength, my grace is sufficient. I will be your strength. And so, yes, am I in power today? Absolutely but I'm empowered by Jesus because his grace is sufficient. The next thing I want to talk about is I am confident. This is a very related thing. It's good to be confident. Henry Ford said, whether you think you can do something or you think you can't, you're right. And there's great significance there. If I go into a project or a work situation, or whatever you can think of, and I think I'm going to fail at this. Failure will be a pretty solid result, because we as humans are great at self-fulfilled prophecy. But the proverb says pride comes before a fall. So what's the proper reason for our confidence? Well, here was Paul's confidence. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. So, Paul is basically saying, even though he was successful, by the way, this was a successful guy. He was high up in the Sanhedrin. He was given papers by which he could go and persecute the church. He had a zeal to see followers of the way put in prison. That was his that was the driving force in his life. And yet at the end of the day, when God got a hold of him on that Damascus road, he turned to him 180 and he said, I count it all but loss that I might gain Christ. And everywhere you look, you can see Paul talking about how little he is and how big God is. Paul would say things. Like, the, the good that I would do, that I do not. And he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And he said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on. So he knew he wasn't perfect, and he was constantly making sure that other people knew that he wasn't perfect. He was a leader in the church, but he said, this isn't about me. Even when he encouraged people to follow him, he always pointed it back to Christ. He said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So Paul's confidence was in Christ. Our confidence should be as well. So if I am confident today, it is because I am following Christ and because he died for me. Positive thinking. I am prosperous. I think it's important at this point to talk about that a lot of times it's how you define the word too and and this particular word is very important because a lot of times in our modern society when we talk about being prosperous we think about the the car that we drive or the house that we live in we say, well, if I just think um, that I'm going to have the best car and the best house, then it will happen. I am prosperous. But here is what Paul said about prosperity. Paul said, Charge them that are rich in the world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, which giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to dis- distribute, willing to communicate, laying up a store for themselves, a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. 1 Timothy six seventeen and nineteen, and as with so many scriptures that I share on this show, we could make a whole podcast episode just based on this passage of scripture because there's a lot here but Paul never says don't be rich he says if you are rich these are things you should do don't think of yourself more highly than you ought because God gave you your riches don't trust in your riches, trust God who gave you your riches to do good to be rich in good works, ready to distribute. Now, I think it's significant that a lot of our downtown, here in the Grand Rapids area, greater West Michigan area, has been fortified by the DeVos and Van Andel families. Now, some people begrudge them their wealth, but if it wasn't for the DeVos and Van Andel's, you wouldn't go into the DeVos Children's Hospital. You wouldn't go into the Van Andel Arena or the DeVos Place for a concert. Those are there because prosperous Christians uh, built them and gave them to the community as something for everyone to enjoy. Now we don't. We can debate about their motives. But we don't know their motives, so we probably shouldn't, but the point is they were able to give because God prospered them in this way so it's not about the wealth it is about how you use it. but further, prosperous does not necessarily mean wealth. God told Joshua in Joshua one eight this book of the law shall not depart from thy mouth. If this book of the law does not depart from you, then you will be prosperous and have good success. But success for you might not be the way success is shown in another person's life. You might never have a new car. You might never have the six-figure income. But if you know how to do an honest day's work, if you're providing for your family, if you have a roof over your head, or if God is providing for you in the absence of any one of those things, you can still have success. Because it's far more important to follow Jesus than to have a bank account that's bursting with wealth. I am full of wholeness. This one speaks to me because on a physical level, I know that I am not whole. And there are some people that say, well, Jesus wants you to be physically whole as well as spiritually whole. And if you just do the right thing, you'll be able to walk. You'll be physically whole. But I know that God has a purpose in my infirmity, as I discussed earlier. And so I'm not seeking physical wholeness this side of heaven. I am trusting that God will give me the strength to go through each day. And so far, he hasn't failed me yet. But this is what Paul says about wholeness. And I think it's very important. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Romans seven eighteen, twenty four. 24. 25 so here we see Paul once again having the proper perspective on himself that there is no good in him that he's not capable of doing good without Jesus we don't have the capable to do we don't have the capability to live a good life as we talked about last week apart from Jesus We don't have the capability to be whole apart from Jesus. There has been no whole humans from birth since the beginning of time. And the last whole humans were Adam and Eve before the fall. The Bible says, as in Adam, all die. We all die. We're not whole. So the only wholeness that we can have is... Through Jesus. Paul says, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus Christ our Lord is the one that leads us to holiness. Positive thinking. I am victorious. Paul says, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein you are also risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, openly, triumphing over them in it. And this is a situation where I was trying to maybe do a smaller section of this passage, but it was so good all together that I couldn't cut it. Um, And so as we talk about being victorious, we are victorious, complete in Him. We are buried with Him in baptism, and we are risen with Him through faith. We were dead in our sins, and he He quickened us together with Him, and He forgave our sins. So He died, for us so that he can make us alive. How wonderful is that thought? And so as we think of each of these aspects, to review, I am empowered, I am confident, I am prosperous, I am full of wholeness, I am victorious. As we look at each of these, we can say if we are redeemed that this is true of us. Because Jesus can give us all this. But the problem comes when we go to people that are not redeemed by the Spirit of God and we say, you can have this if you just manifest it in your life. I am an imperfect, evil human being apart from Christ. The only way that all of these things I just mentioned can be true is if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because see, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'm ever so thankful that that happened. I trust that it will happen for you. But you need to have the starting point, the launch point of trusting Jesus Christ. If anybody is telling you anything else as a starting point, that's a false teaching. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I implore you, if you have not already, come to the Father today through Jesus well that's about all I have to share with you this week I hope that you have enjoyed uh, this episode and then if you have that you will go to Apple podcast and give us a five star review and share this with at least one friend today so that they may, may be encouraged as well I hope you have a great week and that you keep serving the best of masters